I mean, I can hear you. My mic's not. All right. Sounds... Okay. Oh my god. My I have goodness. such a bootleg mic stand set up today. It's yeah. Terrible. What, what have you got going on? Wait, you haven't seen the photo I sent in the group? It's I want you like to literally... describe it for our listeners. All right. So do you I not have... remember what we're doing right now? You're right. You're right. You're right. So what it is is, it's two boxes stacked on top of each other, and then on top of that is a vase, and it just so happened the vase is the the mic holder, and it's just sort of tilted out. It actually kind of works, but it's just I needed to piece together this little this little contraption. It feels like it's been a while since we've done this. It has. You're right? innovative. It's been a long time. Well, yeah, with all the traveling and stuff, okay. it's it's been so difficult to schedule this and. You know, between everyone's travels, like Elphick was in China for for an upcoming story around basketball. So he's been like hard to lock down. So that's why if uh, you've been looking at the cadence of making it up, it's been it's been a little bit off, but hopefully it'll be fine until the rest of the year. I think people are going to understand. I, th- I think they're I mostly, understand. mostly forgiving. So I think we made up for it with our... Yeah. Very special guest um, episode else? last week. Yeah, but that that time zone difference between Hong Kong and, and LA is this like is really the worst. Rough. This is honestly the worst. Like if you had to you do you and I are at the worst times right now. If you had to do a business deal, like if it was more important, do you know it's it'd be awful. Like if you had to communicate with someone between now to five. Yeah, in yeah, Hong it's Kong. eleven p.m. in Hong Kong. It's seven ten a.m. You're actually, you're really putting it in because it's Friday night in Hong Kong. Well, or I just don't have a lot going on in my life. Friday night at the office. That's a, that's a great way to spend it. What else is there to do but work? What else is there to do but co-host this podcast? So I hear, or I have seen on your social media that you have a new phone. Yes. Yes. I am the proud owner of an iPhone 10. And I, I have to constantly say want to say X, but yes, you have an iPhone 10. Yeah, I would say that in general, it's been it's been pretty dope. At the end of the day, like I came from a 6S, so anything would have been an upgrade, to be honest. But uh, one is of there the anything? That, yeah, like what is really new, new about the 10 that people should know about? Uh, I mean, it has to be face recognition. Don't I say almost animojis. feel like we don't even need to talk about it. I don't almost feel like we don't need to talk about it because um, I think that the the lack of the lack of a, a physical hardware button is kind of part of the strategy to integrate face recognition, right? Because there's yeah. no, you kind of have to start integrating gestures. And honestly, I think gestures being this quote unquote difficult thing and being super complex, it's obviously part of like the underlying Apple narrative, but it's also not that hard. Like I think if I threw an iPhone to you right now, yeah, you would not know how to use it. But at the same time, it's like, do we really need to be in a position where there's absolutely no learning curve to something? I, I don't I don't agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think but I eventually will probably upgrade someday, if not soon, probably not soon. Um yeah. and I'm I'm not opposed to there being a learning curve. You know, one of the things too that I find really impressive is just like the the ability to create content on it. Like the the camera, obviously the apps you can buy help enhance the experience. The fact of the matter is like the, the camera is really, really, really impressive. Like I, f- I found myself actually using the camera a lot more or just mobile cameras in general. Like for the longest time, I just kind of 
put it off. I never used it other than just taking like a snapshot for memory. Now I feel like I can actually create content and it sort of peeled away another layer. And it, you know, the way that we've talked about this before, you know, in the past where there's sort of this planned level of obsolescence when you have to upgrade firmwares or whatever, and it just progressively makes your, your experience a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. Right. So what that made me realize is that for some people, if you're like wanting to create content on your mobile device, sometimes you need to follow the trends. So if you don't have relatively the latest product or phone, you might struggle to create content. I mean, yeah, you can still create content on it. It just, I got to a point for me personally where it was so slow, so laggy that it just was frustrating. I didn't even want to take a photo. I think that's fair. Yeah. Like computers, I think, have always had this element of, yes, this is going to become obsolete or it just gets slower every year. But I think that with iPhones and like just mobile devices in general, it's been a different level of of obsolescence where it's like being forced on you versus actual technological change. I mean, there's a, I'm sure there's a counterbalance there, right? Like older processors are literally older processors. But, you know, everyone's sort of being forced to update their architecture on their apps or whatever to make it run in new environments. So I think naturally that just forces things to slow down. That probably went way too deep into that than was necessary, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation, but it's probably like its whole entire own topic. Yeah, I definitely think it needs a little bit more time spent with it, just thinking about how it actually operates. And maybe that's like a story for another day, like an actual deeper narrative. The tech you use it, you use enabling you or disabling you to produce content. Yeah. It's, that's interesting. It's really, it's really something that that's come to mind because I don't know if you've been following my Instagram stories, but I'm much more active than I, I have. Been. And you have been. Yeah. And it's crazy because like a lot of times people are like, Oh, I, I don't remember. Did you shoot? Like I was at lunch the other day and someone was like, did you shoot that on your phone or your camera? And my camera was like a film camera. Like I wasn't yeah. even, I still have the same role when he messaged me. So it was like, obviously on my, I forget on my what you were posting on IG stories, but I was going to troll you because I just felt like this isn't anything I've seen from Eugene before, but I've been trying to be nicer. So I'll let you go. That's fine. Okay. Let's dive in. You have a heavy topic. We both have heavy topics anyway. So we got to get going. So in a bit of a departure from what we usually do on the making briefing, we just did some actual original reporting in a way. I was at ComplexCon as an attendee, not as an exhibitor like we were last year, but just someone that wanted to stop by, check it out and see how things had evolved from last year. And for those that are unfamiliar with ComplexCon, it was a, I guess the best way to put it, it, it's a curated convention and festival Uh, that took place between November 4th and 5th in Long Beach. It was something that was overseen from a cultural level by people like Pharrell Williams, Takeshi Murakami, uh, Off-White's Virgil Abloh, Colette co-founder Sarah Andelman, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of people that were involved, a lot of people that were involved from sort of the street culture fashion space. In 2016, which, which was when it was launched, there was, I think there was a sense of uncertainty of how it would play out. People weren't sure if, is this going to be successful? Is this going to take off? And honestly, the, I think the first year and the first show was a, a pretty massive success for what it was trying to achieve. And that was to sort of bring the internet 
offline into the real world. It's me yeah. seeing people that I follow on Twitter. I think I actually think that was Kazim from from the Macon community. He was like, oh, there's like all these people I follow and I'm just like walking past them on the show floor. Was he there in 2016 as well? He didn't go in 2016. 2017 was his first time. In 2017, I think one of the biggest changes were just the just the overall scale. You had people spending millions of dollars on booths. Like the rumor was Nike spent $2 million on a booth. What? Um, on, top, on top of that, just the overall scale, like something like 50,000 people came through the doors of ComplexCon in 2017, which that's honestly pretty impressive. Um, it did also open up some new problems, I'd say. And it's interesting though. So we're going to get into what the problems are. But it's interesting because one year is a really short time for something to totally change. Or not totally change, but that's a really quick time to show problems, to grow. you know? I would say that in general, though, the problems aren't really complex cons problems per se. Like the, the underlying issues are not because of them. I need okay, to let's be get very into what the problems are and then I'll clarify so, what I mean. I think it's more like, the sort of trajectory of the culture. It's kind of like, where have things, where were things last year? How have things magnified in 2017? Okay, then maybe my question is like, how come the trajectory of the culture could have hidden itself from being evident last year and suddenly be evident this year at ComplexCon? Because you were saying 2016 was a success, right? And I'm not saying it's ComplexCon's fault, which is what you're saying as well. Like, so our, the culture has changed, but how come we didn't see that at ComplexCon last year? I think that it's just market conditions have changed, and I hate to use that word. But, but in a year really, is what I'm saying. Are you thinking it's a year? Or is like, did ComplexCon do something last year that was somehow preventative? No, no. no. I think it's really a matter of what ComplexCon represents, and ComplexCon is really just a platform for this culture, right? Okay. It's not really... I mean, you could 100% argue that Complex also has a part, an influential part in dictating culture. If you look at it, there's been a lot of movements that have just reinforced the consumeristic nature of street culture. And I guess what I can do is I can sort of run into some of the talking points that we include in the briefing. That that includes yeah. uh, Bobby Hundreds. You know, Bobby Hundreds, obviously a very well-known figure within streetwear. He He's really outspoken, like especially as of late. I think that all the stuff around him has kind of forced his hand to be more vocal about commenting on what's going on. And he put together uh, an Instagram post, like a basically did it in a way where it's just a bunch of slides that had messages on them. Okay, I'm just going to read just two, three sentences, but it's like six sl text slides and it's worth um, reading the whole thing. But in his intro, he says, you could smell the oils of commerce in the air. The fuckboys were at a fever pitch. So many Nikes and Mirakami merch and so many collaborations. So much money. Everyone's spending money to resell and make more money. Just so much money. Yeah. Uh, that was one part of it. The second part was a good friend, Jeff Carvalho, who oversees a lot of things at High Snobiety. And he had a slightly different approach to it that in some ways a little bit more drilled down. It was just about the overall safety. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that happen at ComplexCon that, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday and they're like, I just felt unsafe at ComplexCon. You know, all this money flying around, people going after, sought after sneakers and like, dude, it's not that hard to like bring something in there, you know, if you really wanted to mess around with somebody. Yeah. Like 
there's security checks at the front door, but I mean, if you want to bring a gun in there and I'm not trying to create a level of like, of, of people being, you know, scared or afraid of being there, but I'm just passing on like general sentiment, right? It's just like so crowded in there. You never know what's going to happen. Things might just pop off. Like there were like fights, like booths being shut down, like undefeated booth got shut down. Um, someone told me that one of the walls at, at the union booth got pushed over. Like there's stuff like that, that I, do you really want to go to a trade show about that's in many ways focused around footwear and sneakers and come away hurt? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's worth in that capacity. No, not right? at all. Yeah. So I think those are kind of the underlying things that people were, were on people's minds and it got to the point where, Hey, you know what? I'm going to voice my opinion on this, but yeah, this is, you know, I have to be, I think what's important is that in, in some ways complex con gets scapegoated for this because of what happened. I'm sure there's things that they want to do better for next year and they're aware of, but overall, I think that what, what was the most notable element of it all was the fact that when you look at the way things are promoted and this is my, this is my opinion of it in many ways. It's like you look at how imbalanced the, 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 the promotion is it's about hey this exclusive product is dropping at complex con mm-hmm. this you know this t-shirt or whatever we're gonna have exclusive merchandise that's part of it and i understand that we need part of that commerce element to keep the keep the wheels moving but on that same note you have so many good things that you know happening at complex con you have these panel discussions etc but inevitably that stuff gets kind of lost in the mix you know, how do you ensure that those other opportunities are just equally represented? I don't know. I, I maybe maybe I just have like a skewed perception. It's only one singular point of view. Most people I talked to that went to the talks felt like that was more valuable than the experience of fighting through the foot traffic to walk a show to look at product. So how do you find a way to return to those sort of um, those pivotal moments within culture, which you know, people would, are going to reference back like some of the some of the things that happened. Like there was a talk that once again, to use Kazim as an example, he was always referencing the Steve Stout combo, just talking about all of his experiences, you know, and they started breaking down like Kanye albums of the past and how that was sort of put together. And I think those are like moments in culture that need to be reinforced and highlighted versus a piece of virtually ephemeral product that's going to be gone literally next year. In my opinion, like people aren't going to care about that stuff. Do you think that brands need to stop releasing limited quantities of products? It's one thing to say it. No, I think that they shouldn't because it's just marketing in general, right? But, but I think that they need really, to they have a certain fulfillment. The very severity of the quantity of certain collaborations this year is extreme. In my opinion, like, I think that it's, I I understand that it's marketing, but I think it goes to what you're saying. Like, sure, a product can have around it a whole design process. It can have panel discussions. It can be meaningful in some bigger way. But if at the same time, on top of that, you decide to make it so extremely limited that the reality is it's it's impossible for yeah. it to be on the streets. Like, I think that's, I, I think it's irresponsible. I'm just going to say it. Like, it, it's funny. It's funny that you bring this up because this is, this seems like a position I would take, but I also recognize as a brand, there is a certain 
business element to it. And what you and I deem to be success in this context is different than what a brand deems to be success. And what's success for a brand? Oh, I sold XYZ, you know, like this many people were talking about me. Uh, that to me is is something that you cannot fundamentally remove from the equation. People are always going to talk about that or they, they'll always need to have those goals in mind as a brand, right, to sell stuff. You and I are different because we're not brands per se. We care more about maybe the direction of culture, not to say like you're heavily invested in so-called like street culture, right? But I think when people like Bobby and Jeff come out and even myself come out and start like, highlighting some of the things that are wrong with this culture. It's sort of, you know, an indication of, of where things need to go in our opinion anyways, because I think there's, there's going to be this level of, of, of change, right? I think you kind of feel it right now. This is bifurcation of culture as I, as I'd like to put it. It's, you're always going to have this lowest common denominator element of, Hey, complex content as a show will exist. It will always be there, but it will appeal to arguably the the bottom of the pyramid. People are there just there to buy stuff and be told what to buy. You know, I think people like Foot Locker, um, mall brands in general will probably need to have a level of involvement in a show like ComplexCon. Will other people come back next year? I don't know. That's to be said. You know, like and when I say that, I mean I think people will always come back in terms of attending, but in what capacity are you going to want to show there? Like looking back at whether Macon could have, should have did ComplexCon 2017, like it's a very clear definitive no, we shouldn't have done it because it just wouldn't have fit. You know, like I don't, it's not that the, the Macon reader, the Macon listener isn't at ComplexCon. There was so much more noise in 2017 that it was very difficult for you to break through. And like, honestly, we don't have like this super hyped brand that's selling limited edition things that, everyone wants to buy a piece of, right? Like you're, tr- you're basically trying to put people onto stories that don't have a tangible element. And that was one of the conscious decisions we made. Does complex con make sense for us? I don't think so, to be honest. We don't, we're not best suited for this type of environment that's heavily driven by retail. To kind of elaborate more on that sort of bifurcation, what you're going to see is different ranges of, street culture. And I think that I need to be very careful when I explain this because it's not like, yo, you know, the lowbrow and the highbrow are going to sort of separate. And I think highbrow is just more like not pretentious elements of culture so much as people that want a bit more from what's going on. It's like, I want to know the ideas, thoughts that are shaping this. Whereas some people on the other end just want to buy and consume to be a participant within it. Some want to create, some want to consume. So I think that's just the reality of it. I still think one of the fundamental problems is how many brands intentionally create this false exclusivity. Because in this day and age, obviously any product could be made to sufficiently fill shelves. There's no, like, let's not pretend on a, on a big brand level, yeah, I think. Yeah, let's not pretend, okay, that Nike or Supreme cannot make enough products for the people who want the product, okay? Like in terms of an actual business merchandising standpoint, they can do that if they want, and they don't because it's part of their marketing, marketing. ploy yeah. to make something hyper hyper exclusive to you know beef up 
whatever item it is and make it really attractive. Okay, so that's what I mean by like, I think brands are being irresponsible because I do think that this very one simple thing by limiting, by them changing the way they do limited editions could solve some of the issues we're talking about, like consumerism and safety. Okay, like I don't think, I, I see you already fighting back, but I do think this is part of the problem. And the other thing that I have, the issue that I have is just fundamentally the part of streetwear that is built on brands is built on the back of products. Okay, so this is a really difficult problem, right? Because if it's a product, like how do you, are you cannot convince every product manufacturer brand that they need to make, there, there needs to be substance behind the actual fact of a t-shirt or a shoe. And I, that's, I think that goes to what you're saying about like a divide. But I just think like ultimately it's not, it's not going to go away because that's, yeah. that, well, that I is mean, part I of the foundation did, of streetwear is the actual yeah. items. Yeah, it, it is what I think now it is. I think what, what you've come to understand and know and experience is very much driven by consumerism. And yeah, I was at dinner with uh, Alex the other day and he kind of raised a, a good point where for the first time ever, well, maybe not first time ever, but in terms of like relatively big subcultures and that sort of is a, a contradiction, right? Because subcultures should be underground. But you're just saying like, Streetwear was one of the first subcultures that you could just openly buy your way into the culture. You know, you could buy the right shoes, buy the right clothes. And it was less about a certain level of consumption and support through the products being made. Actually, does that even make sense? I don't know. Like, I think it's more that if I, if I had $10,000, I could buy my way and, and look like I'm part of the culture without actually necessarily participating beyond consumerism. And that has just amplified, amplified, amplified. That to me is probably the best representation of where this, where this whole culture is gone. And that's not to say that it's the only part of culture, right? There's still people that are doing things like sharing conversations um, and making that the backbone of what they create. But there's just an imbalance. That's my issue right now is the imbalance. It's just like we're just so hyper-focused on the product side shopping, 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 buying this and that. Like, I think that it's, it's a little bit unfortunate for us to sort of dumb down the product a bit. It's kind of like we don't, we expect consumers not to want more, but we don't, so we don't give them more. I really think there's a part of it that consumers want something deeper. And I've said this before, this, this, this has always been like this ongoing narrative through our discussions and our arguments. Like what role does brand play in the overall landscape of culture, right? Should they just be selling product or should they have an underlying mission? And Oh my you know, goodness. Kind of- I didn't even, I for, for a second, I got so wrapped up in this conflicts con discussion that I didn't even hear myself being part of the same argument again. Exactly. But I think beyond that, it's we just need to respect consumers a bit more rather than I think Bobby might have referenced this in his thing too. But it's like, don't look at kids as like a dollar sign, right? Look at them as people that are going to carry the torch for the next generation. I'm like, can we equip them? In my opinion, can you equip them with the tools, um, the analytical thought to actually make a difference rather than like, hey, you know what? What's going to happen if all you've known 
is just to consume and buy shit. Like, what does that mean? Like, how are you actually going to, how are you going to carry the torch for culture? You know, maybe I'm asking too much, but I just feel that like, at least give them the opportunity to embrace and get excited about things outside of product. I'm probably in a mat, in a position where I'm asking for something that far exceeds what a lot of people are willing to do. But at the end of the day, if you don't do it, then that's, you're not going to make any progress either way, right? Like at least try to do it. That's what we try to do. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, that's kind of one of the big reasons why I left Hypebeast. It was like, it was just that the trajectory of Hypebeast was just, it was very product focused. You know, there was not, we no longer could really focus on editorial. People weren't quote unquote reading it, albeit it was hard and harder to find when you had so much content being pumped out. But that was just my personal sort of putting my foot down like, this is what I believe in and I'm going to try to create that future rather than just like be salty about my job because I'm writing about sneakers or we're talking about the same stuff over and over again. And that's not a diss to all my peers and people that still work there and are just part of that culture in that capacity. It's just that I wanted something else and I wanted to, to influence it differently. What you were referencing was actually in Jeff Carvalho's caption. He said, stop treating the kids like corralled cattle with purses. It's on us to help fix it or at least work on a solution. And I think for once, I'm not going to crush your dreams. You're allowed to dream. But I think what I want to make clear is that I, I think it's the wrong perspective to say, let's return to how things are. How, how things were like, I think it's mm-hmm. incorrect to say, oh, let's restore a part of this culture that is lost. I think more accurately what you and Jeff and Bobby would want is let's make something new. Okay. I don't think that there's, I don't think it's a way forward to think about like restoration of something, but like, let's be more innovative about how you can push this community forwards. Yeah, and I, that's kind of what I was trying to say with the whole bifurcation. It's like you're going to have that other element of it. That's fine. No one's saying that you need to raise that and just like, you know, get rid of that element of it. What I'm asking for is this, that, like I said, that bifurcation. It's like people that want something more, let's find a way to get it to them and find a way to provide opportunity where it's not in this massive mix where you can't find it. You know, that's the big thing is like, I think there, like I said, there's going to be people walking the show there that have an opinion and just like, man, this is not a good experience. Um, and there'll be people that understand and feel that, but then they go a layer deeper and they, they start analyzing. And I think there's going to be, you know, this sort of like step, step up approach of how can you start to find opportunities where people can just like identify with things on a more profound level. You know, I think that everything that, that Jeff and Bobby have said are in many ways the the beginning of something new. Yeah. Trying to find a way to like bring more sense. And more sense could mean a lot of things, like more sense to the products that are created, more sense to the culture, um, more sense to like how to make things better, right? I think that's the underlying yeah. theme behind what what I see here. You know, yeah. and, and like I said, at the end of the day, like one event can play a pivotal role, but I think there's going to be still another 365 days until the next complex con to see how things play out. Now, I don't doubt that this sort of event has a place within this culture. Like you said, it's very much rooted in, 
in consumeristic tendencies, which is not the it's not inherently I didn't say, wrong. I did not say we're, yeah. we're I did not say it's rooted in consumeristic tendencies, I, I am. that phrase, which I, I is am. very negative. I'm just saying that product as in an item of apparel is yeah. at the foundation of this culture. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to say that that's what you're what you're implying. It's my own belief. Right. 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 It's my own belief that that's where it's at right now. And I No, no, no. I know. I do think that is I do think that's where it is now. I what I was trying to say is that like if you look historically, it's not that the culture is based off of consumerism because I don't think I don't in my head, I don't equate the word consumerism with like product. I just mean that at the beginning, there were shirts and there are shoes. Right. And then along the way, it became to being um, when I think consumerism, I think like this desire for material goods and, and the, yeah. the hunger is just for the thing. And I don't think that's how it used to be. So I think we're on the yeah. same page, actually, for once. No. Yeah, we're on the same page. We're, I think we're approaching. Through we're it. approaching. Same chapter. I don't think it's about being on the same page ever. It's just that I think in this capacity, just the reason why we work together is because of a shared belief in where things should go and where things are currently, et cetera, et cetera. That's all it really comes down to. to talk to you about is DNA info and Gothamist getting shut down by their owner. And what this is, is DNA info and Gothamist are both really hyper local news sites, meaning they talk very particularly about the cities that they're in and even more specifically like neighborhoods and boroughs. So DNA info is based in used to be based in New York and Chicago. And then Gothamist was based in like another four cities in the States. They really pride themselves on attending, you know, local government meetings and taking the meat of that and telling their readers so that these small stories, when they become bigger stories, people have background, you know, they have context of how this happened. So what happened is that they voted um, at the Gothamist staff office last week to join the Writers Guild, which the Writers Guild of America East also represents Vice, HuffPo, Slate, Thrillist, Gawker Media. And shortly after their vote to join the union, um, their owner, Joe Ricketts, he's a billionaire. He owns the Chicago Cubs. He founded TD Ameritrade, closes them down um, on November 2nd. And it was like really abrupt. Okay. Like the the sites just come down entirely, like nothing there. They've been replaced by a letter from Ricketts. And he doesn't say explicitly like you want to join a union. So I shut you down, but that's pretty much it. Like that's why there's really no other way to interpret this move. And he had made threats beforehand um, that alluded to this idea that if they unionized, then he would take drastic measures. The reason I wanted to talk about this is because the state of media is shifting rapidly and it's sobering to see how 
easy it is for media outlets to be closed down for various reasons. Like I'm not here to talk about unions. Okay. Like I don't, I don't think you and I are about to have a conversation about the politics of that. No, I don't but want just to talk like, about that either. But we see, we see in the news, you know, like publications get shut down for financial reasons a lot. Like they don't have enough advertisers or they don't have enough subscribers to their paywall. So they get shut down. And in this case, it was just like another thing that caused them to shut down. And it just uh, furthers this story of like media is really vulnerable. Like we're really fragile, apparently, to other people's whims or like other institutions yeah. and other I, companies desires. I, I also think though, before you get into that, I think what needs to be sort of identified are the different chapters. And I, I'm not, I can't say I'm like an expert and I could identify them from a very granular perspective, but I do see a certain trend amongst publishers of a certain era. And what I mean by that is if you're a publisher that started in an era where the business model was predominantly display advertising, I I really think that you are in for a bit of a, a shock unless you can, well, I mean, you've already probably been, you know, put into a certain position because of the way business models have changed. What that means is that if you've created a business around that and you've been able to scale relatively quickly, you are now at a point where the bottom's being taken out from underneath you and you may not have other revenue sources to keep things propped up. And mind you, this is a bit of a different example because it's owned by a billionaire, et cetera, et cetera. But it also changes, right? Like I think that what is for better or worse, the challenge now is that it's not that media cannot exist. It's just that it's very difficult for media to exist based on a previous era's foundation. I think what strikes me is that you can be innovative in the way you finance your media. Like Gothamist and DNA Info, financially, they found a way. They found this rich owner who supported them. And he really, actually, genuinely, Ricketts did support the work that DNA Info and Gothamist did until they unionized, okay? So that actually does answer your what you're raising about like, publications needing to find other methods to finance themselves. But what gets me down and the point that I want to make is that the value still does not inherently come from the writing and the journalism itself. And that just drives me totally up the wall that regardless of whatever, you can't sell writing like you can sell a shoe. Or only certain people have been able to achieve that level of transaction that's probably a bad way of putting it but you know but i agree you're you're totally spot on in that and i i think that 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 raises a good point in that the way that that's been sort of set up is you you need to really find other ways and that's the thing is like when you're a relatively bigger company like i don't think dna info is by any means small like they're not massive but they're not small it's like yeah they're not it's small. very difficult i wouldn't say they it's were very, small yeah, it's very difficult for you to find a way to start integrating new revenue streams because you're such a big boat that needs to kind of slightly <sighs> veer off. And mind you, whether even if they were able to achieve a different level of profitability, would this shutdown still have occurred? I don't know. But I just know that... I guess what I was trying to get at is, do media companies need billion-dollar owners to subsist? Well, 
I think billionaire owners is a way for them to exist. But what I'm saying is that media continues to exist at the whims of someone else as opposed to the writing itself. Because like, let's say you find advertising like from a brand or an institution or whoever, you're still at the whims of that brand, that institution. And it's, it's just, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not here to propose a solution that I know of, but it's just that writing is, and I mean specifically journalism, is in the grips of someone else as in. Yeah, it's, it's not in your the, own control. It's not within your own control. It is, there is someone else's intentions at play. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at some of the publications or media outlets that are owned by billionaires, there are actually quite a few of them. Well, new ones, I should say. Like, obviously, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. So there is an underlying discussion that's going on about the power that they yield. Not only the ability to influence the narrative, but also... The success and the future, well, maybe not the success, but the future of critical pillars of culture lie in the hands of these billionaires who, out of spite, they feel like some type of way, oh, you want to unionize? Well, here's a big F you. I'm going to just shut you guys down. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a a scary thought. Yeah. One of the things that I have thought about is how I feel that journalism some kinds of journalism, like not what we do, but the kind that Gotham as DNA info does, like this hyper local news stuff, is like a utility, like a public service, right? Yeah, and in service. that case, it should not be controlled by, you know, a single per- rich person because it's this service for everyone. They can just shut it off. It's like giving a rich person control of the electric grid. Yeah, exactly. Like you on ComplexCon, if you give me the time, I can just monologue to myself about this topic. I'm not I'm not restricting your time. Though, <laughs> so you should um, go in if you want. I think the other thing that is sobering about Gothamist and DNA info closing down in particular is the loss of really tiny specific stories that are only relevant to handfuls of people, but are still important. You know, like I think news isn't necessarily just important when it applies to the most people. And like news is equally as important and enabling if it matters very seriously to 50 people in a neighborhood. And I think closures of sites similar to this mean that you get less information about what's going on immediately around you. And sometimes that's like what's most useful, right? Like, sure, we need to know the latest thing that... uh, the latest bill that's passing through the house, right? Or Trump's latest gaffe abroad. But we also need to know what's happening on our street, right? Like is something as silly as are they taking away parking meters? Like that could affect your life. And we don't, you don't have access to that information. It's kind of strange to think about like not even being maybe reaching a point where you can't even get that easily anymore. Media is very much focused on things that happen on the coast because everything in between is sort of shrinking. I mean, this is a bit of a different example, but in general, like, yeah, hyperlocal news has always been put under pressure in the, in the, in the internet age. If people are really interested in this topic, they should read up on stratechery's what they call uh, the aggregation theory. So aggregation theory is basically how, um, the previous 
world that we lived in, you know, like the printing press era, obviously was done away by the internet, where in the internet age, you know, the marginal cost of serving another user is, is virtually zero. So then what that means is that like, it really puts pressure on individuals like newspapers, right? Because they no longer can control the power like they once did. Um, I'm not going to go too much into it because I need to look back and reference it if I was to really explain it. But it's definitely worth a read if you're interested or fascinated in the world of, I guess, in a way, business theory. How, how do you think this whole event has any relation to the world of Macon, which is like a super independent, relatively, not relatively, much smaller sort of media company? I love our independence. And I do think frequently about what it means to bring in outside influences, like whatever that means. But what I'm talking about is like letting other people have more of a say in what stories we tell. Um, I'm not trying to say this in like some kind of foreboding way, but I just think about what it means when you share the independence of a newsroom with other people. Right. So I think about that, but then I also think about the kind, the nature of the stories that we pick and I want to be a bigger advocate of doing smaller stories um, and not smaller stories as in the length, but stories that are what, I, what I'm saying is like relevant and important to a small set of people and not worrying about there being people who are not interested in that subject. Like I want to be comfortable with not feeling like we need to cover lots of ground or make sure that everyone is on board with the new story. Yeah. I think that it's just at this point in time, and it's another thing that sort of reinforced itself in recent times. It's that, you know, in the last few years, it's been very difficult for people to walk off the beaten path because the beaten path, AKA the subjects that have the most regular airplay have a baked in audience. So that's why people focus on them, right? Like, you know, if, if my if my goal behind my media company is inherent scale, it's like, well, if I if I speak about a celebrity, there's a natural amplification that's baked into the storyline. Whereas, hey, this is someone no one's heard about, but they're doing amazing things. That's a risk, and that's also a uncertain use of resources. And I think that's the one thing that I've really tried to push away from. And you never know, like this story that you do or you invest resources into, maybe it doesn't turn out, which sucks. I mean, like you're spending money that you are holding very tight, you know, to your, to your chest. I think that if that's what we've tried to do is have a very rigorous process towards figuring out what's a good story and what's not a good story. Right. And then that allows you to take these educated bets on stuff that isn't, I'm just, this is the most like cliche example that isn't, Kanye West that isn't, you know, XYZ celebrity. Not to say they don't have great stories. It's just that there's so many other people that don't have the ability to have their, their message shared. Turn that frown upside down, Charisse. You guys can't see this, but Charisse got this, this lost look in her eyes. Maybe it's late too. I don't know. No, it's mainly the, it, it's mainly the feeling that but like both of our topics, like it feels like to me that we're in these sort of uphill battles. Like, you know, the, the myth of Sisyphus? No, educate so, me. So, so Sisyphus was the, in Greek mythology, king of Corinth. And okay, this is not the part that's relevant, but I'm going to tell the whole myth anyway. He was being punished for being arrogant. 
And his punishment was that he had to roll a really big rock up a hill. And then when it got to the top, it was going to like push him down to the bottom. And that was what he had to do for the rest of eternity. Okay, like push this rock up the hill. But the relevant part of this is not the arrogance part, but just the fact that like, it just feels like in both of these cases that we're talking about, like we're the small guy. Do you not feel like the small person, like the the underdog? Yeah, of course. Do you ever get tired? Think, do you ever get tired of being the underdog? No, I don't because I don't get tired of it because if you look at it at some point in time, the giant was also the underdog. So you're always you're always making hopefully micro changes or changes based on experience and decisions you make, whether good or bad, to eventually be the giant. And not to say that you're looking to be this all powerful force. It's going to crush everybody. It's more that, you know, I've been, we've been working with this guy, Dylan out of uh, New York as of late and his Holy Trinity. And his I don't, I'm pretty sure he did make this up because it's a pretty <laughs> overarching theme, but it's like, what, what's the Holy Trinity of media? And it's like audience revenue and product. Right. And like, you need those three things to be successful. And for us, like the, the most interesting sort of challenge right now is just audience. How do you grow audience? How do you grow audience in an era where it's so noisy and it really becomes a game that benefits people that are really good at digital marketing, online marketing, right? And I think you and I recognize that we're always trying to work at that. And I'm not trying to detract from the little guy thing, but recognizing what are the three things that make for a successful media company or platform you start breaking down the things and it becomes a little bit more manageable. I think that it does. And and not just because it's now midnight in Hong Kong, but like, I do think sometimes it like wears me down to think like we always have to be like scrapping to get things together, like that we have to bootstrap our way up. But at the other time, I realized that like there are advantages to being in the position where we are. Yeah, I mean, you make changes and you can hopefully identify market forces or market trends and set yourself up for success when those do hit. And I think that the scrappiness of it all is to be expected, but I not for a second feel as though that will be the forever sort of trajectory or feeling that we get. You know, I there's things that are definitely challenging, but at the same time, it's like, if you want to create a new framework, it's always going to be challenging. You know, like I've used this quote and I'm you know, so many times, but the guys at Outlier are always saying that, like, you know, there's so much energy that goes into creating something new. And, you know, whether it's entrepreneurship or starting something, it's not a sprint. It's like this, the most grueling, sustained marathon that's probably in excess of, you know, the usual distance. But that's what it is. It's like, it's not, it's not for everybody. But I think that it's also something that we're very cognizant of, like Alex and I, it's like, where we are now and how we do things now are not how we should be doing things each and every month, therefore after, right? Things should get easier. Other things pop up that are more difficult, but the general things that you were doing before shouldn't be as hard as they were in the past, in my opinion. Good place to end I, things for the day. Yeah, this was, you know what? I, I recognize that when we're not in the same room, things generally drag on a bit longer because we can't just inter, interrupt each other. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon and our membership opportunities, which include exclusive content and a members-only Slack channel, you can head over to macon.com. 
There you'll experience more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or simply sharing this podcast with a friend. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.